Amen. Welcome, everyone. My name is Dan Jarvis, one of the pastors here. Great to see you. If we haven't met, I'd love to talk to you after the service and get to know you a little bit. Uh, right now, we're in the midst of a series through the book of Daniel in the Bible. So if you'd like to go ahead and turn there, we'll look at Daniel 5 in just a moment. And I would encourage you to take a Bible in hand. There should be a few up under the seats uh, in front of you, uh, or open up your app to uh, NLT Bible, and we'll, we'll read the whole chapter together first, and then walk back through and discover a few things, make a few observations. So Daniel is, a, is an exciting book of the Bible uh, for its faith, for the courage displayed, and also for the fact that quite a few kind of global history events unfold during the during the story and so we'll run into a few things that you might be familiar with even from back in history class in high school or something with the rise and fall of global empires and Daniel had something to do with a couple of those so Daniel chapter 5 starting in verse 1 many years later King Belshazzar gave a great feast for 1,000 of his nobles and he drank wine with them well Belshazzar was Drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. So they brought these gold cups taken from the temple to the, from the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines, drank from them. And while they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. The king shouted for enchanters, astrologers, fortune tellers to be brought in before him. And he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of royal honor and will have a gold chain placed around his neck. He will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But when all the king's wise men had come in, none of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. So the king grew even more alarmed, and his face turned pale, and his nobles, too, were shaken. When the queen mother heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall. She said to Belshazzar, long live the king, don't be so pale and frightened. There is a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers of Babylon. This man, Daniel, whom the king had named Belteshazzar, has exceptional ability and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what this writing means. So Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king asked him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles brought from Judah by my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar? I have heard that you have the spirit of the gods within you, and that you're filled with insight, understanding, and wisdom. My wise men and enchanters have tried to read the words on the wall and tell me their meaning, but they cannot do it. I am told that you can give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read these words and tell me their meaning, 
You will be clothed in purple robes of royal honor, and you'll have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you'll become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Well, Daniel answered the king, keep your gifts or give them to someone else, but I will tell you what this writing means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that all the people of all the races and nations and languages trembled before him in fear. He killed those he wanted to kill. He spared those he wanted to spare. He honored those he wanted to honor. He disgraced those he wanted to disgrace. But when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven from human society and he was given the mind of a wild animal. And he lived among the wild donkeys. He ate grass like a cow, and he was drenched with the dew of heaven until he learned that the Most High God rules over all the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. You are his successor, O Belshazzar. And you knew all this, yet you have not humbled yourself, for you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven And you've had these cups from his temple brought before you, and you, your nobles, your wives, your concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. So God has sent this hand to write this message. Mene, mene, telkel, and parson. And this is what those words mean. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You've been weighed on the balances and you've not measured up. Parson means divided. Your kingdom has been divided between, divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes and a gold chain was hung around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. There's a lot going on here in this situation. As the king is having this big party and there's a thousand of his nobles there, they're getting drunk and they're praising idols and they're you know, using this temple property that had been brought from Jerusalem many, many years prior just to kind of mock God, to defy God. Um, And in the midst of that, Belshazzar is not actually running his kingdom. This is one of the things where when when you see people like this, people who have the personality traits of this king, not only are they extremely arrogant in what they do, but they also don't attend to what is actually like, they, they don't see danger. They don't, they don't attend to their actual job. So while this was happening, here's what was going on outside of the party. The Medo-Persian Empire had sent a vast army to surround the city of Babylon and besiege it. And so now the Babylonians, they, they'd been in battles before, and even though this wasn't good, I mean, all their territory had essentially been swallowed up, and now this army is surrounding their capital city. The capital city was like an impregnable fortress, they had built these sky-high walls. They had an, you know, amazing mechanisms for defense. And for decades, this city had been safe. It, it, would, it would be impossible to invade. There's no way to get over the wall. And so even though they were surrounded by an enemy army, 
the king here, rather than, I don't know, strategizing about what to do with that great threat right outside the door, he's throwing this big raucous party, right? Because they don't think they have anything to worry about. They think they're safe. They think they have plenty laid up for many years. There's no, no harm will come to them. Eventually, the Medo-Persians will just go away because they can't get past the walls. Well, like any fixed military position, um, eventually someone does figure out how to get past it, right? So as this party was happening, the Medo-Persians were implementing a plan that they had been cooking up to divert the river that flowed under the city so that their troops could march in the riverbed and take over Babylon. The Babylonians, they were puffed up with pride. They thought their city was the greatest. They never saw that coming. And, uh, and so that night, as the whole government apparatus of Babylon was distracted at this crazy party, you could imagine people along the walls, like whatever guards were actually stationed up there, starting to realize, like, wait a minute, so, something's going on. There's movement down there, and pretty soon there's massing of troops, and the water flow is starting to dry up. And you could imagine maybe a few commanders or generals throughout the storyline, you know, starting to freak out a little bit, like they realize... They're about to be under surprise attack, and wait, where are our leaders? They're all drunk. They're all at this party. Uh, They're literally watching the hand right on the wall saying to them, it's over. Um, And so that night, the Medo-Persian Empire took over the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian king was killed, uh, along obviously with many of the nobles, uh, but not Daniel, as we'll see in just a moment. Now, it's interesting to, to consider Daniel's part in this story, uh, Daniel didn't flinch. Da- Daniel at this point would probably be close to 80 years old. Uh, so he, had li- he came to Babylon when he was about 16. He served in the Babylonian government for all these decades. And yet when things were going totally off the rails, did Daniel go off the rails? No, he was, he was calm <laughs> in the midst of all this because his actual heart investment wasn't in Babylon, the government, right? So whether Babylon rises or falls, does that mess with who Daniel is? Not at all, because Daniel's a servant of God first. He was, he'd been clear about that since he was 16. He's still crystal clear about that. And so when the queen mother kind of remembers, like, oh yeah, back, back in the day, Daniel, Daniel comes in and he's just as bold as ever. In fact, when Daniel comes into the king and he says, you can keep your gifts, I, I, I have to think about the, and we all know a few, I'm not pointing any fingers, but you know, people reach a certain age when they just stop caring what other people think, and they're able to just sort of say the bold thing that everybody else says, I can't believe they just said that, but ah, what can you do, you know? They're old enough to be allowed to say that. So maybe Daniel had a little of that going on. Um, he didn't care for the gold chain or the purple robe, and Honestly, it didn't mean anything because the empire was over, right? So that's, you're getting proclaimed third highest in the land and then it's done like a few hours later. Uh, So that's what Daniel was walking into. He was calm. He was consistent in his boldness and what he was about. And it's amazing because even the government that followed that, you would think all the Babylonian officials would be wiped out, right? But here's Daniel as the, as the Medo-Persian army takes over the city, and you know, obviously they have to kind of flip over in a new administration, look at verse 3 of chapter 6. We'll get to this next week, uh, really the pinnacle of Daniel's storyline. Um, but here's a little preview. 
Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. This is in the Medo-Persian Empire now, so a whole new culture, new situation, new leaders. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. So Daniel now had administrated the Babylonian Empire. He's about to be put in charge of the Medo-Persian Empire. So really amazing how God uses Daniel throughout all of this. But I thought it would be interesting to zero in on this king, Belshazzar, and just ask, what should we be learning from a king like that? Now, none of us are rooting for him exactly in this story, right? Nebuchadnezzar is a little bit different story. Nebuchadnezzar, as we talked about the last few weeks, like he, he learned the hard way, in a, in a real hard way, but he did actually figure out that he wasn't God and that the Lord of heaven is God. And so I remember back in seminary, one of the debates that people would have, and I don't actually know what I officially think, so don't ask me, but uh, we would kind of have this debate about, will we see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? Because even though he was terrible, like he was an awful person, he did end up actually acknowledging God. Um, So you say, well, did he kind of, like in our way of thinking, did he sort of become a Christian? Um, Not sure, but he certainly didn't pass the faith forward to the next generation, because here we are. Uh, as everything's falling apart in Babylon. So if we look at Belshazzar and we say, well, what should we learn? Here's how I think we might be able to glean a little bit of wisdom here. We can look at some hard lessons for the hard-headed. So you say, wow, this is great. Church is just for me. Um, Actually, if you're hard-headed, you might not realize that. So hopefully I can break through. We'll see. So the first lesson um, that that I believe, and Daniel kind of delivers these lessons to Belshazzar, you know, as he's pale, white, knees are knocking, you know, and, and, and also he's afraid of this supernatural sign. The city, I mean, you have to imagine, like, what would it be like to be in Babylon that night? They had been the global superpower. They had no, there was no reason to fear in their minds, and suddenly they realized the enemy is all over. Like, we're, we're done. And it's just overnight, everything changed. So there's lots of fear all, all around Daniel's in here in this party, and the first lesson, I believe, is to the arrogant. Defying God guarantees your humiliation. You can defy other people, and maybe in the end you'll somehow win. You you can go toe-to-toe with somebody, and maybe you'll win the argument, but it doesn't work that way with God. You have to think, you're finite, you're limited, you're a human being, you're a creation. Even if you're like the, the most important human being, or the top, or the king, or something, you're still minuscule compared to the power of God. And so for any human being to look up to heaven with a clenched fist and say, God, I'm going to do it my way, um, guarantees you'll be humiliated. There's no way that that ever ends in your favor. So as Belshazzar says, hey, sure, bring the temple artifacts and we're going to toast to our idols with the, you know, the, with the, the Hebrew gods' utensils or whatever, in that, there was no way that would end well for him. Uh, he thought he was having a grand old time, and it was really the end. Okay, so we see that. Daniel brings this up. He says, you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven. You've not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. But you have to think this party they were at was actually a pretty religious party. Because what were they doing other than getting drunk? It says they were praising the, the idol gods that they had. So their idols would have represented all different kinds of things. You know, idols of gold and iron and wood. And 
those all represented you know, things that they would pay homage to in one way or another. And it's kind of like Daniel's pointing out, hey, guess what? You're doing all this, but you have defied the God that actually controls your destiny. Not a very bright thing to do. Okay, so that gets us to lesson number two, a lesson for the mockers. Hey, if you're kind of like this king and you would just say, I just kind of treat all this lightly, people get really serious about faith and I kind of snicker at them. Well, to the mockers, just remember, you're the joke and you're not even funny. Um, Because here's Belshazzar thinking that he's having the time of his life at this epic party and what's literally happening around him. His city is being destroyed and he is about to be killed. So who had the last laugh? Well, the Medo-Persians, God, maybe Daniel, certainly not Belshazzar. So remember, the moment that your heart turns to kind of make fun of what it means to be serious about faith and about God, in that moment, you're signing up for more of that humiliation. And the reality is, the smart people in the room won't be laughing even along with you as it happens. Daniel said, you've had these cups from God's temple brought before you. You've been drinking wine from them and praising gods of silver and gold, gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. Just think how ridiculous that is, that you look at an inanimate object, say, that represents our God, and you start offering it sacrifices. Who who is the fool in the story? So Belshazzar did not, he was so blind by his, blinded by his pride, he, he couldn't see the truth. And he also couldn't run his kingdom effectively. Hey, here's the third lesson. It's to the self-absorbed. Your party will be over sooner than you think. They had no idea their party was about to be over. They had no idea that all of their positions and all everything that they believed and all of the grandeur of Babylon and all the history and all the values and all the laws, all of it was going to disappear literally that night. Belshazzar wasn't thinking about the future. He wasn't thinking about other people. He wasn't caring about his soldiers or his population. He was literally just self-absorbed, doing whatever he felt like doing. That party ends quickly for anyone who joins it. Daniel reports that very night Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed and Darius the Mede took over. So, what if you are hard-headed? The good news is, like looking around here, no one has, to my knowledge, no one in here has control of a global empire. Because I think that kind of amplifies the bad qualities of hard-headedness, right? So you have a little bit more of a humble existence to start with, but that doesn't necessarily keep any of us in our place, right? Because in our little empires that we build, our, the world around us, the, our family, our household, our business, our career pathway, our school, in those situations, we jockey for position and we think that we're great somehow and we can get puffed up with pride just like, a, just like King Belshazzar could. So what hope do we have if we're hard-headed? I want to offer you three. That Daniel, it's interesting because in this text, Daniel really wasn't giving hope. Like, hey, if you'll repent, this will change. You always kind of want to thought project it and go, well, what if he did? What if Belshazzar had just fallen to his knees and said, I've been wrong. You know, 
Well, maybe God would have had mercy, but that clearly wasn't in the cards, and God knew that as well, and that's why the handwriting didn't say turn or else, it said you're done, right? There wasn't, there wasn't like a if unless or something like that coming at him. Uh, so here's a, here's a little bit of hope, though, that we could extend because we're reading this story, and my sense is that for us, the handwriting is not quite on our wall yet, right? So we still, our heart's still beating, we still have opportunity to, to turn, we still have a heart that's willing to potentially make the right decision. So here's our hope. Number one, we hope you're smart enough to learn from the experience of others. Belshazzar wasn't, right? What did Daniel bring up? Like before Daniel even told him the meaning of the handwriting, he said, let me give you a little history lesson. Your father or your grandfather, depending on how you read it, Nebuchadnezzar, he experienced all of this and he learned the truth. He learned what it means to humble himself before God of heaven. You knew about it and you didn't listen. You defied God instead. So Belshazzar was not smart enough to learn from the experience of others. Are you? Like, can you learn from the experience of your parents when they say, hey, I was down that road, don't go that way? Or do, are you hard-headed enough to where you have to learn it yourself, make the same mistake, not have any forward motion? Uh, are you able to pick up a you know, book of Proverbs or you know, read a story in the Bible about someone who went the wrong way and say, you know, I'm going to learn from this and not copy what they're doing? There again, it's a, it's a point of wisdom to be able to do that. The second hope is we hope that you'll give up being your own God and honor the real one. Okay, so really, Belshazzar, even though he's praising the gods of gold or whatever, people like that, they, they think they're in command of their own destiny. So they think the decisions belong to them and they can literally do whatever they want. And in a way, it's feel, they feel like they're morally invincible, like there's nothing I could do that would be wrong because I'm in charge. Well, we hope that you'll give up being your own God and honor the real one. And here's the third hope. We hope you're not too far gone already. I think it's so striking to look at verse 26. The many, many, it was repeated twice on the handwriting on the wall. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. There's no second chance. You've already passed the point of no return. It's over. So does that happen to people like you and me? Like, could that happen to us? Interesting, I don't, I don't know, right? I mean, I want to believe that anybody who's still thinking and open-hearted would be able to potentially still make the right decision. But there's not really a way to test case it, because if you're too far gone, then you won't turn and we'll never know. Uh, but, uh, but if you have a heart to think about it right now, I would say there's still some hope for you. Now, I'd like you to turn, as we wrap up here, to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to see what Jesus has offered to the hard-hearted, and also recognize that there might be a few more of us in that camp than we think. As human beings, we usually we hear something terrible about what other people are doing, and we say, at least I'm not that stupid, or I didn't do that, and I wouldn't go that far with that. So we look at Belshazzar and we say, like, what in the world with this guy? I would, you know, how couldn't he see? Why didn't he change? What, what we don't see is what's in our own heart, and it's actually the same characteristics, right? So 
a little word of warning to you as we read all this, as we talked about it. If you don't think that this applies to you, it definitely does. Hey, because here's what humble people are doing right now. People with humility and perspective are evaluating their life and they're thinking like, you know what, I probably have been hard-headed. I probably do have some pride I need to root out. The people who are actually hard-headed are the ones who are saying, I don't think this is for me. Man, when's lunch? Like, <laughs> can we get out of here? The, uh, so I'm just giving you that warning. Like, if somehow you're not tuning in, like, this could be you. You could be Belshazzar. The other thing that I wanted to point out, which we'll come back to next week and we'll walk through, is how Daniel, in the midst of the rise and fall of kingdoms and kings, was so consistent. In fact, I was thinking there's three words that describe him. He was clear, like there was no question about who he was actually serving. He was willing to add value where he was and work with governments, but he wasn't bought into those. He was serving God, and he always started his, I mean, he was always crystal clear from age 16 forward that that's what he was about. He was calm, like even when everyone else was panicking and afraid and things were going off the rails, he was steady and calm and even under, I mean, in all of the situations throughout the book of Daniel, his life was under threat, right? And yet he was so confident in his faith, he was also consistent. So when we see his attitude as a young man, his attitude as an old man, same attitude. God first, I'm willing to tell you the truth, I'm not going to mince words, here it is. And so uh, we'll see where that consistency led him to probably the pinnacle of his life and then ultimately a great testimony to the world of the gospel. That'll be next week. Um, but here's what we should do about the handwriting that may be on our wall. I hope you haven't seen a vision that says to you, your days are numbered or your kingdom's over or something like that. Um, if you haven't, my guess is you have an opportunity to choose a different road. The reason you have that is because God extends grace to you. Grace you don't deserve, grace you can't earn. And hard-headed people don't see it, they can't receive it, they don't get it. Their pride is in their way. But when you're humble, when you're willing to admit your need, you can start to see God's pathway out of hard-headedness. Here it is, Ephesians chapter two, verse one. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way. All of us used to live that way. We all were refusing to obey God. We're all in that same boat. So we don't say, wow, people like Belshazzar way off the deep end. No, you're right there with them. So am I. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. So in that sense, the handwriting actually was on our wall. It is on our wall. That apart from some divine intervention apart from some sort of miracle of God's grace, we're tracking on the same road as Belshazzar and any other villain throughout history that you want to name because all of us have the same heart problem. I'm really glad there's another verse. Verse four. 
But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when, we, when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we've been united in Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all that he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece, and he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. The hope for the hard-headed is not that they would reform themselves. It's not that they'll suddenly see the light and come around. The hope is that God will have mercy on them. My hope is that God will have mercy on me. Your hope is that God will have mercy on you. God's grace, transforming your heart, changing you, saving you, bringing you over to his side, restoring all the things that you've broken, God is willing to do that for you. God is willing to do that in you. Your path to receive his grace is always and only going to be humility. You look up to heaven and you say, God, I need you. So let's do that together. Lord, here in this moment, we recognize that hard-heartedness and hard-headedness go together, and those traits often define us. In an extreme example, in King Belshazzar, we see where that leads. We don't want that to be our story. Instead, Lord, we want to learn from the experience of others. We want to be able to look back with humility and not relearn hard lessons over and over again. We want to move toward you while we have opportunity before it's too late. And Lord, in our limited perspective and with what little ability we do have, we want to humble ourselves before you and say, Lord, we need you. We need your grace in our lives. We need your forgiveness for our sins. We need your power in order to turn around and go a new way. Thank you for giving us this story as a warning. I pray that we would heed it. And thank you for the grace that we just read about in Ephesians. The grace that saves us, that puts us on a new path. Lord, we commit all this to you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you. We'll see you next week for chapter 6.